I am delighted to be here. I, I, I do so enjoy proclaiming the Word of God, especially to, to you, God's people, my people, and uh, that I, I can enjoy to be a part of you all when I can. I'm usually here on Wednesday evenings, uh, so I see you then, but not, unfortunately not here very much on Sunday. So can here? Very good. I've come. I've, I brought you some difficult news this morning, actually. Um, perhaps as a physician might bring to you some difficult news. Uh, but I've come not only with a diagnosis, but also I, I have with me the cure, uh, which is absolutely certain to, uh, to be effective. So uh, I'd like to kind of calm your fears a little bit, but uh, I do want you to know that I have some some probably some difficult news for you, because it's an ailment that I myself actually uh, suffer from and uh, was inflicted with early on. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the difficulty really comes from uh, one of the key words that I'm going to use, uh, conjoin. Um, and uh, I've tried to, uh, I'm trying to work with alliteration here. Um, I'm trying to work my right-brained person into a little bit of left-brained activity. And that really is sort of the basis of uh, what I'd like to bring to you today. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, I, uh, as I sort of continued in my ailment that I'm, I'm going to tell you about here, uh, I was really delighted with the idea that as a person who seemed to do better in mathematics than English, uh, that I was destined for a life of right-brained activity. And I was very happy with that, really, because it seemed to be uh, a thing that I was comfortable with, and I was pretty happy to kind of get some release from all of that left-brained activity, the reading of books, um, the study of literature and history, uh, and that sort of thing. And I felt such a tremendous release when I recognized uh, that I was an absolute uh, fumbling idiot when it came to those things. Uh, but, however, I could uh, work with differential equations and calculus and, and physics and these sort of things, and so... I felt like, you know, boy, I've been saved from a life of words. <laughs> you know, I was just talking with Benjamin Brett this morning. He's, uh, he's tracking along with mechanical engineering curriculum the same as I did. And I recall that I had about three classes that were not completely uh, in the uh, engineering curriculum. Everything else was stuff that um, uh, had nothing to do with, um, you know, words. Uh, and phrases and that sort of thing. And um, really what, what, the, uh, what the issue here is, is the difference between what is sacred and what is secular. And maybe uh, in our day, perhaps one of the best um, ways and one of the places that we really handle this, and it's really in our society, uh, is in the area of creation and beginnings. Uh, some of you have probably seen Ben Stein's uh, movie called Expelled. Uh, it's, a, it's a good. It's a very good movie. In that in that movie, Ben Stein really ultimately what he does is he exposes and reveals to us this great malady, this great problem uh, that I had uh, and continue to struggle with, and likely you do. And here's the problem. The problem is this: is that basically what God has put together, man wants to separate. What God has put together. Man wants to separate. And that basically is what the movie is about. If you really come to understand what, what point he's trying to make is this. is In our day, in our society, in American culture in particular, and all over the West, um, the idea is this. Is that 
religion is okay. As a matter of fact, Christianity is okay. As long as it only remains in the compartmented aspect of values. So it's okay for you, it may not be okay for someone else. But when you put that into the arena of truth, of that which is to impact everyone, then that's a no-go. And so, so the idea is this, is that you can have your Christianity, but you can't have that and, and uh, appreciable uh, or recognized legitimate science and rationality. Does that make sense? So that really is the, that really is the main question. Very, very, very simple idea, really. The idea is this, this idea that, that, that somehow uh, children, the idea is this, is that God really is not interested in what you do when you play with your toys. That that's different. When you go to church, you do God things. And you talk about God things, right? But when you leave church, the idea is, the idea in American society and really in, in all of Western society, really all of the world, is this idea that, that uh, church is a place for sacred things. And that everything else outside of that realm is, is, is in some other category that God simply is not interested in, and that really has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. So that's the malady. That's the, uh, do you feel sick this morning? I mean, do you, feel, do you feel like you've kind of been duped into this, this idea that there's an absolute separation between uh, what is sacred and what is secular? Between your impact and the kingdom? Uh, I grew up uh, in, a, in a faithful uh, Protestant evangelical congregation. And in that congregation, uh, there was perpetuated an idea kind of like this. If you were a parent, or if you were a family that happened to have a young man that was headed into some sort of vocational ministry, then you somehow succeeded in life. But, if you happened to, uh, with your faithful family, produce someone who does something else, whether it be uh, banking or, or, uh, or whether it be the construction of homes or whether it be uh, the beautiful uh, working of carpentry or brick masonry. You've, you've unfortunately uh, have, I hate to kind of say you've failed, but you've really not, you've really not done so well. Um, you're kind of down here and the other folks are up here. Have you ever heard anything like that before? Have you ever, have you ever uh, been sort of led to think like that? Well, that's the same idea. That's the same idea that would say uh, that ethics, the class that Benjamin Brett is going to enter into and probably has already begun, that very idea is, is, is that ethics somehow can be completely unattached from Christianity. It's this, it's this idea, uh, you know, that, that somehow ideas and thoughts and approaches to things such as science, architecture, pottery, and plumbing, somehow that those are completely evacuated uh, and we enter into those with no connection to any other worldview or understanding. But that isn't true at all. That's not true at all. You know, when I was in high school, um, another malady that I had, and it played completely and perfectly into this problem of compartmentalization, is that I was accused of not being able to integrate knowledge. I couldn't take what I'd learned over here and apply it to this over here. 
But you see, our very society and our culture leads us into thinking in that way. It leads us into thinking that my faith in Christ ultimately can have nothing to do with me when I weld a bead on a piece of metal. Or when I remove uh, a piece of two-inch drain line and replace it with something better underneath the house. But you see, our faith in Christ and our worldview of Christianity has everything to do with each of those things. And it is to impact all of those things as well. I'd like to bring to you uh, an idea, a few ideas that I've gotten from, I'd like to acknowledge a few uh, folks that I've gotten some of these ideas from. One of them is uh, a gentleman named Joel Beakey. The other is uh, a lady who has written a number of wonderful books. Her name is Nancy Piercy. We oftentimes, probably, uh, you have felt the same as I, have really felt a great relief. The fall perverted everything. When we think of the fall, uh, we likely uh, would think of Genesis chapter 3. My Bible is turned there right now. But Genesis chapters 1 and 2 speak of God's creation. But as I said, the fall perverted everything. God intended, for instance, for children to be a blessing. God intended for Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden and to spread it. Is that the way it seems today? Again, in our society, children are not a blessing. They're considered a liability. We are a people who don't really enter into work as God uh, intended us to. Work is simply a means to do something else. It's a way to support my avocation. You see, my work during the week, if I'm a typical American, really has nothing to do with the area of kingdom activity or really with anything in particular. What it has to do with is it enables me financially to enter into that thing which I really enjoy. Are you tracking with me? Is, I mean, do you, is that the world that you live in? I mean, we really do. We're in a society that absolutely lives for what? For the weekend. We live for the weekend. Is that, is that as God has intended it? No. You know, the ancient Greeks believed that work was a curse and nothing else. Their society supported slavery so that, again, the upper class could enjoy this contemplative life, this life uh, really of leisure that allowed them the opportunity to do left-brain activities, to think, to anticipate, to consider all kinds of strange ideas. Work, particularly menial, laborious work with your hands, was a bad thing. If you sported skin that was tanned somehow by the sun, that was not good. Because that was an indication that you were a worker bee. But we reject that. But yet we recognize in our society we're absolutely enveloped by this idea. So we understand the fall perverted everything. And this perversion continued, but was in many ways recaptured. That is God's intention for us with this event known as the Reformation. This idea really recovered three ideas. God's word specifically uh, in the area of cultural mandate of Christian vocation or calling. And this idea of justification by faith alone. 
and the authority of Scripture. Again, the Reformation brought three primary ideas. The authority of Scripture, justification by faith, and the doctrine of vocation. Now, maybe that's not in your top three of the Reformed ideas. The justification of faith, is that an important idea? Why, why is that so important? Well, because Christianity alone recognizes this idea that we have nothing to bring to God. We can't justify ourselves. And unless our sins are placed upon the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are absolutely doomed. And we can anticipate an eternal death in hell. Justification by faith alone. That great idea. We also have this concept of the authority of Scripture. When we consider uh, the Reformation, we understand that at the time of the Reformation, there was understood to be two streams of authority. Two streams of, of the authority of this idea that there are, in a sense, two tracks whereby we come to understand what is right, what is wrong, what we're to do, our great purpose in life. The Reformation captured this idea that, in fact, there's only one stream of authority. There's only one place where you go to understand what the truth is, how to live, how to act, how to respond to your neighbors, how to raise your children, how to work with your hands. And that one stream was the Word of God. But there was also a third idea that the Reformation captured, which likely you've not really considered that much. Nor have I. And that is the idea of vocation. The concept that God is a matter of fact, just as he has proclaimed in his word in places like Exodus that we'll look at and also other places in 1 Corinthians, that he has, in fact, kept his word. He has gifted us not only in the realm of spirituality, but also in other areas as well. And it is for the common good. And that's God's intent. That's his idea. So we're moving on toward the cure here. Vocation is how God works through human beings. Modern evangelicalism suffers from an entrenched misunderstanding. A misunderstanding that goes so deep that, again, likely it's very difficult for us to think other ways about this. But the idea here is for us to think Christianly about our work. How do we think Christianly about our work? Now, again, we want to be careful with this idea because one of the, one of the things here is that we want to bring together, uh, we're not going to see a difference in some areas of the sacred, that is, of what is holy and what isn't. But we reject a number of ideas with that. Number one, we reject this idea that there is, in fact, no longer a separation between, for instance, an ordained ministry and the laity. The Bible doesn't call us to that idea. But in the 70s and 80s, there was a great movement called the lay movement, and one of the things that it really intended to do was in some ways separate that or to bring it together in some ways. That's not what I'm talking about, nor is that what Martin Luther was talking about or John Calvin when they talk about bringing together this which God never separated. The other idea is to somehow say that everything or that all truth is God's truth. That is, that every realm, every person has some little packet of, of God's truth, and we sort of bring that to ourselves. And also that we can see uh, this shining light, for instance, in some area that is absolutely lawless and would not be lawful for us to enter into in accordance with God's Word. 
So we're not talking about that either. But what we're talking about is this, is that God intends, and as William Tyndale said himself, in the eyes of God, there is no difference between the one whose vocation is to wash dishes and the one whose vocation is to proclaim the Word of God from the pulpit. That's what William Tyndale said. As he understood vocation. William Tyndale understood this idea that I can be faithful and will do no better than to be faithful in that place where God has put me. And that I can, the same as Adam and Eve were called to expand the garden, I can expand the garden of God from a kitchen sink just as well as anyone else can. That's the idea that we're talking about here. Again, in our day, one of the places where that uh, uh, really has, has shown its face has been in the feminist movement. The idea in the feminist movement was to release women from the enculturated uh, constraints that our society placed upon them. It did nothing of the sort. It did not remove cultural constraints. It only added more. The feminist movement was an idea thunk up, thunk up by men. It's not freeing to women. It's more constraining. Again, it's this idea of compartmentalization, you see. And it has removed this idea uh, of the beauty of femininity, of the beauty of homemaking, for instance, of these things that God says, this is a magnificent vocation among many others. I'd like to draw your attention to a few, uh, really a, a summary of the Reformed teachings on vocation. First of all, the idea that God works and we are called to bear His image. God works and we are called to bear His image. As an image bearer, we therefore must also work. If we don't work, we don't bear part of the very essence of God's image. In John chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible says this. The Lord Jesus Christ answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Also in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Bible says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is that? That is what is known as the cultural mandate. That is what God has called us to do. Every single one of us, from the little toddler to the oldest among us, that is what God has called us to do. He has called us to be fruitful and multiply. He has called us to subdue and cultivate the earth. That's what God has called us to do. Now, what the Bible would have us to understand is that if our vocation, if our work somehow doesn't, is, doesn't enable us to enter into those sort of kingdom activities, 
then we become a piece of furniture in the house of God is just, just as we as individuals may look at a piece of furniture in our house and we can say, I've never used that. I can't think of a purpose for this. I can't even imagine what anyone would do with this piece of furniture. It has never fulfilled its purpose. I can't sit on it. I can't eat it. And I can't sell it. If we're not entering into this cultural mandate with every ounce of energy that we have, then we're just like this piece of furniture. We're absolutely worthless. Surely, we don't want to be like that. God has called us to work and to bear His image as a worker. Redemption is about being saved from something, from ourselves, from God who will rightly cast us into eternal death if we haven't had our sins laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But redemption is also about being saved to something. God has saved us to that for which we were originally created. When God created the world and all that there is, after He finished it and proclaimed absolute satisfaction with all He made when He said it was very good, was there anything left to do? The creation was complete. Absolutely complete in every aspect. But the great task of God was set before the crown of His creation, Adam and Eve. We're to be image bearers. That's what He says. The perfect example of this is is the young boy who walks behind his father in the snow. And so as the Father in heaven takes these steps just like this, small enough for us to place our feet in the same steps that He took, And so here's the little boy following after his father, placing his feet carefully in every place that he has already stepped. That is the image bearer. That is what we are to do. The Lord Jesus Christ did that. He said, my father is working. And it's as if he said, would it be any surprise to you that I also am working? My Father has walked this way. Why would you be so shocked that I am walking in the same path as Him? Why are you somehow amazed that I am working? My Father is working. He has called me to be the image bearer. And the perfect image bearer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image bearer of the Father. He says, I am working. This is, the, this is the cultural mandate. One, be fruitful and multiply. That is, develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, government. Next, subdue the earth. Harness the natural world. Plant crops. Design machines. Compose music. Next, we should see that God derives satisfaction from His work. In Genesis chapter 1 and verses 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25, we have this phrase in the Bible. It was good. What do we derive from that? Well, this is nothing less than the Father standing back, looking at His work and saying, I like that. That's good. 
Look at that. Look at that. Polyurethane, no drips. That's good. Check out the mortar on those bricks. No problem. You see any rust on that metal? No, sir. That's what he says. He stood back and he said, that is good. What would it take for you to be satisfied with your work? With your vocation? You've got more than one. I can assure you of that. You have more than one vocation. I have a number of vocations. Here are my vocations. Likely I'll miss a few. God has called me and placed me in the position of being a husband. That is a vocation. That is a calling. God has provided for me a complete set of instructions. And also, He has given me models by which to follow. God has called me to be a father. I am a vocational father. God has called me to that. He has provided for me a complete list of instructions and models that I am to enter into. Is this a joyless activity? Absolutely not. God has also called me to make provision for my family. And so He has provided for me uh, another area of vocation which uh, thankfully pays bills. He has called me to be a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has called me to be a friend. He has called me to be a brother. He has called me to be a son to my parents. These are all vocations. They're all specific callings. God has in some way gifted me with my hands. The same as He has for you. I'm not special in that way. He has set all of this before us. And He intends for us to enter into this work with great diligence. Now, it takes preparation. Do you know that God has called us? He has, he has established that the Sabbath come one and seven, right? Is it not one of your greatest joys and satisfactions? I recognize this is a very simple joy. But have you ever been really hungry and anticipated a wonderful meal? Have you ever been really hungry and anticipated a really good meal? Maybe it's Saturday morning and you've got this list of stuff that you're going to do that you've got to do as you beat back the thorns and thistles in your yard or whatever the case may be. And maybe you've uh, already sort of collectively thought as a family or maybe you've uh, uh, prepared for this great meal that everyone's just going to work right through lunch for the most part and you're going to sit down to a wonderful meal together. You ever thought about that? Well, sure, I mean, that's no big deal, right? Do you think, have you felt differently about that meal and about that occasion than uh, the time when you just sort of sat around all day and didn't do anything? And you really... You, you look back on the day at, uh, at say, 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening, and, you, and you, you think to yourself, let's see, what did I do today? Has that ever happened to you? How's the evening go? Is it really satisfying? No. It isn't. Do you think God made it that way? He did. 
God has called us and shaped us to enter into and be people of work. You see, one of the things that the Reformation recovered is the fact that work is dignity. That when we make things with our hands, when we beat back the wretchedness and wickedness of sin and evil and all that it brought, it makes everything else better. It makes the, it makes the times of relaxation better. It really makes them what they are. Otherwise, there really is no such thing. I mean, if you spend your entire day doing nothing, what is doing nothing like? You just want to sit down and chill out. My friends, if you chill out all day long, you've just removed the very idea of chilling out. You can't enjoy that anymore. Have you ever ruined that for yourself? Sure you have. That's because we misunderstand vocation and what it is that God has called us to do. When we fritter away everything on wasteful endeavors, you'll have no rest. You will not enjoy the quiet moments. Why should you? We also see that God provides for us through our work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 says this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, he has told them, the Thessalonians, what is to be their ambition? Do you have ambition? What is your ambition? What is it that you want to do? Children, what is it that you want to do? Big people, what is it that you want to do? What is your ambition? Well, the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, let it be your ambition to fulfill your calling. Oh, what is that? He brings into play here this idea, again, that God calls us, that He gifts us individually, and that it has some societal impact. Now, the typical high school students or the one who's involved in college studies right now, what do you think the likelihood is that that person considers the way that God has gifted them in the context of their community and society? Let me ask you a question. If you wanted to write a book and make a lot of money, what would you write it on? Well, if there's uh, thousands of books coming out every month um, in the area of, um, oh, I don't know, say uh, the cooking of lamb chops, I mean, do you think you really are going to do well by writing a book on the cooking of lamb chops? Probably not. Do you think maybe that God would be indicating to you that the way that you're going to fit into this uh, comprehensive idea, uh, this societal idea with the gifts that you have, do you think it's going to be something else? Do you see something that needs to be done? Do you uh, tell yourself that you've not been called to do that? 
you might should think again. Do you wonder why God's placed you there? Do you wonder why He's given you the understanding and the ability to see what it is that needs to be done? And for you look at yourself and you say, wow, I can do that. God provides for us through our work. We also see that God has commanded us to work and to work within the framework of God's commands. Now, I've already read the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 26. We have this idea, this work, this ruling, this filling, this subduing. Let me ask you a question. Think about the creation right now, right after the sixth day. The dawn of the, dawn of the Sabbath. The sun's about to come up on the seventh day here on the earth. The, the seventh day, okay? There have only been six days. Here's the seventh day. The, dawn is, the, the sun is coming up on the seventh day here, and you look around. You have the ability to see all the earth that God has created and proclaimed good. Now, I want to I ask you if you'd help me uh, really to compare something here. This completed world, would you compare that world to... I'm going to give you two options, okay? Would you compare the completed world to a house that's completely built? Okay? Or... A pile of materials. A house that's completely built. Or a pile of materials. Now again, God called the earth good. I'm not sure if you've ever considered this. Was there something left to do on the earth after God created man and woman? Well, what did He tell them to do? I'd like to propose to you that we probably should think about the earth in its completed form when God proclaimed it good, likely to be more like Apollo materials than a completed house. Now, why would I say that? Well, a number of reasons. God has given us primarily two examples for the exact same thing that occurred. There have been a number of new beginnings in the Scripture, in the world. As a matter of fact, Robert Murray McShane's reading uh, plan for the Bible is based on the new beginnings. Now, the first beginning where McShane begins his Bible reading plan is where? Well, it's in the book of Genesis. Is there another beginning? Well, how about, how about the Exodus? How about when they were given the land in Israel? Now, let's think about that beginning. God set before them this wonder of Israel, didn't He? He said, go get it. There's only one small problem. It's occupied by people that hate me. Now, is that more like a completed house or a pile of lumber? It's more like a pile of lumber. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth for another new beginning in the Gospel. And so the Father said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I give to you humanity. There's only one small problem. None of them can occupy heaven until you do something. You've got to be their Redeemer. You might say, wow, what kind of gift is that? When God finished creating the earth, 
Adam and Eve had work to do before the fall. Now, you may think in your mind that their task was this, to walk down the row of a weedless garden and pick the fruit off the trees. Is that what you think Adam and Eve were to do in the unblemished world? Be honest. Is that it? That is not it. What were they to do? Tell me this. Did the Garden of Eden take... Was that... Did that encompass every square inch of the earth? What's, what, is, what is the geography like outside of this fertile crescent in the Middle East? It's lush, verdant, green, well-watered. Is that right? No. It's not like that now, and it wasn't like that then. Adam and Eve were to expand the garden. Every day, they were going to take another inch, another square foot, another this, another that. He says they were to rule over everything. Rule over everything? They were to exercise dominion? What did the fall do? Well, the fall didn't establish this idea of work, right? It just made it more difficult. How do your callings fit into the tasks of God? We also should see that God holds us accountable for our work and expects to be acknowledged through it. Now, I've already read in John chapter 5, and I'll not read there. Actually, I will read there because I haven't read this part. If you were to go to John chapter 5, The Bible says this, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Now, again, this idea of image bearing, you see, we, uh, we're sort of led into this idea that we own ourselves in our society, that we can do whatever we want to, uh, and that we aren't people under authority because our society and culture rejects authority largely. We don't like it. We, uh, we enjoy this certain idea of independence, and we really lead ourselves into thinking that, in fact, we are independent that we have been uh, released, that we are no longer uh, tethered to God or to anything else. But that isn't true. Children, do you understand that when you're playing in your bedroom alone, when you're writing, whatever it is you're doing right now, do you understand that God sees you? That He sees you? That He, that he has intentions for you? That He has called you to do something? But, but not with this frown idea that He, that he has some, some terrible and awful thing for you to do. No, not at all. But that God has purposefully 
gifted you and placed you where it is that you are right now, that you might enter, enter into the beauty and the goodness of what He has called you to do? Do we understand that? That's the idea of vocation. And we're, you see, we're, not, we're under God's authority. We don't have any choice in this matter. You know, one has described hell like this. Hell is like the powerful bull that's constrained. He, he's just he, he, he's trying to break free from his constraints, but he cannot. He's using all of his energy over and over and over again. Have you seen that? This absolute desperation, this, this continual bursting of energy to try to break free, but it cannot. But then someone has also described uh, this idea of humility and meekness under authority as the very powerful horse under control. The one who I can say, do this, and he does it. I can tell him to pull a huge tree up out of the ground, and he, he does, with complete, accurate control. Heaven is described like that. God holds us accountable. We're not our own. Which will you be? Will you be this, un, this, this animal that so longs to be unconstrained so that it can destroy everything? Or will you enjoy the strength and the gifts that God has given you for the purpose of cultivating the beauty of God in all you do? We see that God designs particular gifts designed to meet particular needs in the advancement of His kingdom. Exodus chapter 35, beginning in verse 31, says this, And He has filled Him with the Spirit of God and wisdom, referring to that one who would uh, really begin to work on the tabernacle. That is, God has filled Him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. He has also put in his heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Amishak, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of design. What did God gift that person to do the ones that he first gifted. It was their ability to work with their hands. It was a skill that was to be set in motion that would really allow everyone to see the eye for detail and beauty that God has. God designs particular gifts designed to meet particular needs in the advancement of His kingdom. We also see, uh, and it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that the fall has radically affected our work. Work became toil, thorns and thistles frustrate our efforts. Fallen man seeks to glorify himself rather than God. Is that true? Do you, see, uh, do you see this cancer creeping into your own understanding as you have lived on this earth? This idea that, that you've got to toot your own horn if you're going to be exalted, that you've got to think about yourself. That what this is about is about me. 
God never intended for that to be the case. And so has required this thing called redemption and conversion and regeneration to place us back into the place where he would have us to consider our calling, to enjoy the beauties of God and of of cultivating the garden, of expanding Eden. Our work is not only for ourselves. The lesson of the cultural mandate is that our sense of fulfillment is based on our engagement of the culture in creative, constructive work. The ideal human existence is not an endless vacation or eternal leisure. It's not even a monastic retreat for prayer and meditation. But it's diligent effort for the glory of God and to the benefit of others. Our work is not only for ourselves. There's a societal aspect to it, and it's likely that it is qualitatively better to consider what God has done in your life, how He has gifted you, the culture that He has placed you in, and how you might best glorify Him in that process of God's family, of your family. Again, the typical, the, 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 the typical young person that's involved himself in high school and college studies or other type of preparation for training likely has this idea in his head. When can I leave home and break free? Is that God's intent? Has He not placed you in their lives to cultivate this recognition of vocation and calling of how they can involve themselves in something bigger than themselves? Now, this is going to fundamentally change the way that we handle our families. Let me assure you that if you understand God's intent and desire for you and your family to march sweetly and gently along to the glory of God together then you're going to have to do something different. You're going to have to enter into the exhortation of Ephesians chapter 6 that exhorts fathers not to embitter their children. Why? Because it isn't God's intent that they can't wait to leave. It's the cultural mandate that God has given to us. How will you enter into this idea? Work is an individual as well as a societal activity. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing to Corinthians here. And he talks about all the things that God has given to the people. And what he wants for them to understand is this. This is about God's kingdom. This is about expanding God's culture around you. God has called us to take dominion over the culture, over our society. We can't do that on a monastic retreat. We do that as the people who work and sweat and toil every single day. That's how we do it. That's what God has called us to do. That brings a smile upon the face of God. 
We also see that God takes pleasure in beauty, and the Scriptures uh, don't focus simply on the functionality and the utilitarian aspects of work. Now, one, one perversion of this idea is going to be in the communities called the Shaker communities that began uh, in Europe and also came to America, a place where I've been a number of times. Perhaps some of you have as well. In Albany, New York, was a great bastion of a Shaker society, a people who, uh, under the guise of following God, decided that they must be celibate and that they will enter into some strange ideas in their worship of God. Now, likely what you remember about the Shakers is this very simple, utilitarian, functional furniture. That is a perversion of how God would have us to enter into vocational callings. That is the idea that somehow God is this stark, dour, uh, you know, being uh, that will have nothing to do with beauty. Now, because the Shakers also perverted uh, this mandate to be fruitful and multiply, of course, to this day there are three left. It just doesn't work out. Do the math. God has an eye for beauty. He has an eye that you do what you do well. Now, we also see, lastly, that Christ worked as part of His active obedience, and the believer's work through Christ is part of this obedience. The Bible says in John chapter 9, verse 4, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, I've described to you the problem. And, of course, I've hinted at the cure. Martin Luther called vocation, and this idea of calling is sort of the mask of humanity, this idea, or rather God's mask, this idea that God preserves and takes care of the earth through the vocation of men and women. Yes, miracles do happen. But God typically works through the hands and feet and mouths of men and women that He's created. This is how God takes care of the earth. This is how He preserves it. This is how He cultivates the garden. This is how He expands Eden. But we can't miss this. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is an effect of redemption. Uh, the, the right understanding of vocation can only come through being regenerated in Christ. Otherwise, we are hopeless. We'll never be able to shake all of the effects and the corrosion and the rust and the cavity of sin. Will you trust Christ? Will you recognize that your only hope is to lay upon Him the sin that is upon you now? And for you to receive His righteousness and to recognize that to enter into this glory of walking with Christ, of stepping in the very footprints of the Father, just as the child does his father in the snow. You can only do that by walking and trusting in Christ. 
how will you glorify God in your work? Don't read the billboard. You don't need to find a new job. You see, God's promise is that He will give us joy where we are. Now again, our our right understanding uh, doesn't reject this idea that we can move from one job, if you will, to another. God doesn't reject that. Go ahead. But the problem is, the vast majority of people change positions that have, for reasons that have nothing to do with what it is they're doing. It's because they've rejected the calling of God. They've rejected that God has called them to expand a Christian culture where they're at. You know as well as I that oftentimes when you change positions, what has changed? Nothing. You've got yourself a new set of problems. They're just like the old set. God will change your heart. God will change your wanter. God will change your desires. God will give you a joy to do that which He has called you and made you to do. Do you want to... Children, do you really want to enjoy learning? Recognize that God has perfectly fitted you for this work right now. Recognize that God has called you to this work right now. It is your vocation. He has said, you can do this. But that isn't all. God has called you to do a number of other things as well. He has called you to be son or daughter. He has called you to enter into the enterprise of your home. He has called you to do all of these things. Is it distasteful to you? Men, women, where are you with God? What kind of work has He set before you? Is it likely that you're not seeing in a way that God would have you see? Look around you. How is the faith of those that you work with or or who you encounter? Are they trusting in Christ? Are they walking with Christ? You see, we've got to understand that the way to attack the culture with our faith in Christ has got to be much more than listening to Christian music while you lay the bricks or putting a bumper sticker on the back of your car with a fish on it. It's a diligent, energetic, absolute attack of our culture. That's what he have us do. Friends, you have set before you a pile of supplies with a complete instruction. What are you going to do with it? Will you follow Christ? Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have called us to delight in your work. Father, you have shaped our minds, our hands, our bodies for particular works that you've called us to do. Father, give us an understanding of the beauty of this work, of the glory of Christ that's to shine through this. Father, help us not to look down upon that place where you have put us. Give us new eyes to see, Lord. 
Show us your glory in the work of our hands. Show us the necessity of Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen.